reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 17 through 29 and chapter 22 verses 29 through 40. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, You have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, both shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And And of Jezebel, the Lord said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in this city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably and after going, and going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. And so the king died, and he was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, Samaria. 
and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah the son reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in our last part, our last section of the conflict between Elijah the prophet and Ahab, this wicked king in Israel. For the last three sermons, we've seen the conflict between good and evil, uh, between the Lord, represented by the prophet Elijah, and idolatry, represented by uh, King Ahab. King Ahab was a, a king that led the whole nation into uh, Baal worship. He led the, the country, the nation, into idolatry. And uh, for the past two Sundays, um, Nathan Massey and Ben Alessi have done a fantastic job in showing us how these Old Testament accounts how this Old Testament conflict points us to uh, the kingship of Jesus, how these events point us to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know Nathan Massey, uh, you'll, or if you've spoken with him, you'll quickly recognize that he's from the South. Um, Nathan Massey, one thing I appreciate about him is that he is the only person I've ever heard say the phrase, might could, and still sound somewhat intelligent in using it. And I like that phrase. Uh, I like that phrase when we talk about the gospel. I like that phrase when we talk about the work of Jesus Christ. Because when it comes to what Jesus has accomplished, when it comes to the gospel, there is no might could involved. The The work of Jesus Christ is finished. It is done. You see, any kind of religion whether it's a sort of secular creed, a secular religion, or if it's an ancient religion. Every kind of religion says, do this, that, and the other, and then you will be saved. The message of the gospel is different. The message of the gospel is done. Jesus has accomplished your salvation. And uh, I just appreciate the way those guys uh, showed us how clear that is in these Old Testament narratives. And I'm going to do my best uh, to, do, to do that for us this morning as well. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get into the text. Father in heaven, we praise you. We love you. God, we thank you for the kindness that you have shown to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the consistent grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. I thank you for the many blessings that you give us, God. I pray that we would just come before you, God, recognizing that every good we have received has come from your good and sovereign hand. Lord, we love you, and Father, we ask that you would meet us in this time. Uh, Speak to our hearts, God. Help us to turn and repent. Help us to humble ourselves before you and receive the grace that you have for us. Father, we love you, we praise you, help us to praise you and worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So in, in my experience, <clears throat> I have observed that there are quite a few things that are just about universally appreciated. Right? There are things that just about everyone likes, no matter where you go. So for example, in all the countries I've been to and all the cultures I've been a part of, just about every single adult loves and appreciates a hot cup of coffee first thing in the morning. Okay, what makes that even better is uh, on a cool morning, a hot cup of coffee on a cool morning. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Vince, I actually don't like coffee. My answer, congratulations. Uh, you are welcome at this church as well. Weird people are welcome <laughs> at this church as well. Uh, I think about, when I think about uh, universal appreciation, I think about chocolate chip cookies, ice cream, you know, just about everyone likes those things, pizza, everyone likes, there's pizza everywhere. There's pizza in Japan, there's pizza in Thailand, there's pizza all over the place. Um, dogs, I think, are kind of universally appreciated, uh, more so than cats, at least. Um, you know, at le even if you don't own a dog, you can at least appreciate how much loyalty and love they have for their owners. All right, there's a reason why we don't see very many stray dogs around Okinawa, but tons of stray cats. It's because no one wants those things. I think we all love when the good guy wins. We all love a good underdog story. And I think we all appreciate when arrogant people are humbled. Now, the dictionary definition of arrogant is this. It's an adjective. It describes someone or something having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. Do you, have you guys ever known anyone that could be described like that? Or have you ever demonstrated uh, that kind of quality? I know I have. Uh, but I think we all appreciate when arrogant people are humbled. Uh, one thing I, I loved about uh, the Golden State Warriors, like their first title beginning their dynasty run, it was like 2014 or 2015, they were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, one thing I loved about that series is that it was like at the end of game four, after game four, there was a press conference. LeBron James was talking and someone asked him if they were going to win the series. And he, and he goes, yeah, I know we're going to win the series because I am the best player in the world. And what happened? They lost. And part of the reason why that was so nice to see is because he was so arrogant in making that claim. Now, I've experienced this in my own life as well, where I have been humbled. And I'll share my story with you, a recent story. You don't have to share. You're not preaching today. Uh, I can share my story. Um, about a year ago, when we were preparing to move to Okinawa, um, my wife was very keen on buying the tickets. Uh, she, I thought she was being impatient with it. I just wanted her to wait till there was a better time where we could sit down together and really review it, look at all the options. But she just wanted to pull the trigger. So I said, okay, go ahead, buy the tickets. Uh, just make sure that when we're leaving the States, we're flying into Tokyo Haneda Airport because there's two airports in Tokyo. 
And if you fly from the States into Tokyo, Narita, you will have to take a bus with all of your things, and we had like 15 pieces of luggage, down to Tokyo Haneda to make that last leg of the flight. So she buys the tickets, and lo and behold, we're flying into Tokyo Narita, not Tokyo Haneda. So that means we have to take all of our stuff and get on this bus. Now, thankfully, our flight was delayed to the point where uh, the airline just put us up for a night and then we flew out the next morning right from that airport. We didn't have to transfer anything like that. Worked out perfectly fine. But in my arrogance, I told my wife after that, I was like, honey, why don't you just let me handle the tickets from now on? I'll take care of travel stuff. Because I thought that I could not make a mistake in this area. Uh, I had an exaggerated sense of my capabilities. I couldn't make a simple error. So more recently, a couple months ago, we uh, took a trip to the States for the Praetorian Project Conference and to do some support raising there as well. And I am the one who bought the tickets. And so we, we get to the airport, we get all our stuff on the scale, you know, hand in all our documents, and the ticket agent says to me, uh, your, the, your wife's last name on her ticket does not match the last name on her passport. Uh, because on her passport, we haven't updated it, still her maiden name. Uh, we've been married for seven years, so I guess that's taken us a long time to do that. Um, and immediately, I'm like sweating at this point, and I have been humbled because I made a stupid error that I thought I could, I could never make. And after much convincing, after much struggle, they finally agreed to let us through with like a minute left. Uh, we had to run the whole way. It was super stressful. And so I apologized to my wife once we get on the plane. I humble myself before her. And she tells me, I don't even care that it was that stressful. I was just enjoying the fact that you got humbled right before my eyes so much. I think we can all appreciate arrogant people getting humbled. I can look back at that and appreciate it. And what we're going to see today is this truth being played out in the life of the worst king of Israel ever the life of King Ahab. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the standards for a good king and the standards for a bad king. We talked about the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Ahab is the new worst of the worst. Kings tells us that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord that any, than any king that had come before him. No one sold themselves to do evil like Ahab had done. He was worse than any, anyone that had come before him. And there is a reason why he did so much evil, especially in this passage that we're in this morning. The reason he did so much evil is because he was arrogant. He had, a, he had an exaggerated sense of self-importance, an exaggerated sense of his authority, an exaggerated sense of what he thought he deserved. So church, there is quite a lot 
that we have to learn from this negative example of Ahab. But the main thing is this. The main point. Humble yourself before the king who possesses all authority. When we come to understand that it is God who is really in control, when it is God who possesses all authority, there is only one proper response. Humility. Humble yourself before the king who possesses all authority. God's authority is shown to us in three ways in this passage. His authority is shown in his law, in the kindness that he freely chooses to give, and in his plan that will not fail. God's authority is shown in his law, his kindness, and his plan. So continuing with point number one. In chapter 21, verses 17 through 19, we see the prophet Elijah coming to confront Ahab. And he says to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Now that might not make much sense to us, so let me explain the background. Let me explain the context. What had happened is... Uh, Ahab, as a king, he's living in a palace in Samaria, and his palace was right next to a plot of land, a vineyard, that belonged to your average Israelite. His name was Naboth. Ahab wanted this land so that he could have a garden there, uh, wanted to pick up a new hobby. Um, so he tries to strike a deal with Ahab. He's, he offers him better land. He offers him money. And Naboth says, no, how dare I do that? And there's a good reason for this, because the permanent selling of land is explicitly prohibited in God's law. There's a good reason for that. It's because all the land belonged to the Lord, and it was up to him. He had divided the whole land to make sure that every tribe and every family got an inheritance in the land that he promised. That's the kind of God that our God is. He makes sure that there is no lack in his kingdom. He makes sure that everyone is provided an inheritance. So the answer is no. You can't sell your land. You can't buy this land. So Ahab is depressed about it. He walks away, dejected, his head down, but then his wife Jezebel says to him, wait a minute, aren't you the king? Can't you do what you want? Don't you have the authority to take, to take this land? Ahab liked the sound of that. So what they do is they falsely accuse Naboth so that he's put to death and they steal his vineyard. They steal his land, the land that belonged to his fathers, the land that belonged to him. Okay, they treat their people miserably. Like that is a miserable, awful thing for a leader, for a king to do to his subjects. Ahab went directly against the word of the Lord because he had an exaggerated sense of self-importance. He had an exaggerated sense of his authority, an exaggerated sense 
of what it was his right to do. And his wife told him exactly what he wanted to hear. You're important. You're the king. You're special, so this doesn't apply to you. You have the authority to do this, and you need to do what makes you happy. Church, one thing we really need to understand here is that every time we act like we are exempt from God's law, we are showing just how arrogant we really are. Every time we have the audacity to think to ourselves that we deserve what we want, when we want it, even if it goes against the clear word of God, every time we do that, we are showing how deeply rooted arrogance is inside of us. By nature and by nurture, we have convinced ourselves that we can do what we want with who we want whenever we want. We have convinced ourselves that we are the Lord's of our own lives. We have an exaggerated sense of self-importance and authority. Paul writes about this arrogant human condition in Romans chapter 1. Take a look with me at verses 21 through 23. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. According to Paul, who is the they in this passage? They thought they were wise, but became fools. The they Paul is talking about is all mankind. He's talking about us. Claiming to be wise, we act like fools. Claiming to have authority and control, we act like fools. We are just like Ahab. Arrogant, with exaggerated senses of self-importance and authority. We think we rule our lives. We think we rule our lives, so we tell ourselves, you deserve to be happy. You're in control. You can do this. You're special, so this law doesn't apply to you. We listen to the message of Jezebel because it's the message that our hearts want to hear. And in doing so, we betray the true king. There is a word for that kind of betrayal. It's called treason. And we all know that treason deserves nothing less than death. And Jesus, the son of God, is well within his right as king to give us exactly that. But praise God, Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is nothing like Ahab. The scriptures tell us that no one did evil like Ahab did. The scriptures also tell us 
about Jesus that he committed no sin and that no deceit was found in his mouth. He is nothing like Ahab. Jesus, the true king, was perfect, righteous, unstained by sin. And though he did not need to, though he was not constrained to do so, he humbled himself willingly and freely to the point of death, even death on a cross to save a people who had betrayed him. Ahab used his false authority to take. Ahab used his false authority to kill and to steal. Jesus used his supreme authority to give. Jesus used his supreme authority to serve. That is what authority meant to Jesus. Sacrifice and service. Through his humility and selflessness, Jesus revealed to all the world that to him belongs the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what authority meant to Jesus. Church, let us humble ourselves before this kind, righteous, all-powerful king. Because in doing so, in humility, in submission, we will be able to experience the kindness of God. This brings us to our second point. So we see that Ahab is condemned because of his arrogant disregard for God's law. But amazingly, he repents. He grieves over his sin. He tears his clothes in repentance. And so God says to Elijah in verses 27 through 29, he says, And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring this disaster upon his house. God shows grace to Ahab. And let's think about this for a second from Elijah's perspective. Elijah knows all the damage that Ahab has caused. He's led the nation of Israel into idolatry. He has killed and stolen from a man. He has severely hurt the people of Israel. So Elijah probably had a hard time hearing that there was grace for Ahab. He probably had a hard time hearing that there was grace for the worst of the worst. Church, we need to understand two really important things right here. One is that we are just like Ahab. And two, that even though we are just like Ahab, 
arrogant, with exaggerated senses of self-importance, there is grace for us in Jesus Christ. God's authority, his sovereign rule is shown in the kindness that he freely chooses to give. God has the right to show kindness to whom he will, when he will. And there's a really good illustration of this principle in the book of Matthew, in the parable of the workers. Right, so what happens in this parable that Jesus tells is uh, this man, this uh, landowner, employs some guys to work for him. Some of them come at the very start of the day, at six in the morning, and they work all day. But some other guys show up at the very end of the day, just an hour before the work is done. And what happens is both the guys that showed up at first and the guys that showed up last get paid the same wage. Why? Because the master is kind. Let's read this together in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 16. Here Jesus is speaking. He's explaining this parable. He says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last, last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Church, it is so easy for us to begin to compare God's generosity towards us with God's generosity towards other people. It's so easy for us to think to ourselves, well, they don't deserve this. God, what about me? Why am I not getting this? But we make a big mistake in reading this parable. So often for us, especially for those of us who have been in church for a long time and we think we've done so much service in the church, a big mistake that we make is that we think we are the ones who showed up at the beginning of the day. We think that we're the most deserving of this wage. But the truth is that all of us are the last ones to show up. We are the least deserving of God's grace. No matter how involved with church and religion, no matter our religious activity, 
We are all the last to show up. We are all the least deserving. And it is not our right to judge who God shows kindness to. It is God's right. It is his choice to show kindness. He has the authority to do what he wants with what belongs to him. And guess what? Eternal life belongs to God. And praise God, he is so kind that he freely uh, bestows it to so many. God can do what he wants with what belongs to him. Our job is not to judge who God can or cannot show kindness to. Our job is to humble ourselves before this kind and gracious king. And this brings us to our final point this morning. God's plan. God's plan, the concreteness, the absoluteness of his plan reveals his authority. Now, after Elijah brings this word of judgment uh, to Ahab, three years pass. We're told that three years pass. And then after three years, Ahab is once again at war with the kingdom of Syria. And here, towards the end of chapter 22, uh, we see the record of the manner of Ahab's death. So let's look at verses 34 through 38 in 1 Kings chapter 22. Here we see Ahab's death. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So again, Ahab, here he's at war with Syria. And some background here, Ahab doesn't want to get hurt. He doesn't want to get killed. So what he does is he disguises himself so that his partner so that his ally, the king of Judah, becomes the primary target. So everyone's attention is on the king of Judah. Really, no one paid paid attention to Ahab. But then we see something amazing happens. A random guy shoots a random arrow. He didn't even mean to do it. He shoots a random arrow, and it, it places perfectly between the space in Ahab's armor, and then Ahab is mortally wounded. Probably the last thing he was expecting. So what is perfectly clear here is that God is in complete control. Remember the context. We're told at the beginning of chapter 22 that three years had passed since Ahab killed Naboth and stole his vineyard. God's word of judgment seem delayed. His word of judgment isn't fulfilled until three years later. So Ahab is out here thinking, 
that he's actually gotten away with murder. He didn't think that there would come a day when God's judgment would finally meet him. But there did come a day when he had to face the consequences. And church, I can promise you that there will come a day where every single man and woman will have to give an account before their maker of, the, of their lives and the choices, choices that they've made. Despite the scheming, despite the disguises, despite our efforts to hide, despite the human arrogance, God's word stands. God has supreme authority that transcends all our understanding. So it is nothing short of amazing. It is nothing short of amazing to see how God uses his supreme authority, his rule as king, to bless and benefit his people. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Here Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What we see here is that every single event, every single decision, every single detail in history is under God's sovereign control. Even something as heartbreaking as the crucifixion of his son. What this means for us is that God is in control. God is in control of your life. He's in control of your opportunities. He's in control of your affections. He's in control of your decisions. He's in control of your destinies. And to be honest, that kind of language makes us uncomfortable because we like to think that we are in control. We love the illusion of control. But in reality, there is not a single thing that we can hold under our power. Only God has supreme authority. Only God has sovereign control. So what I find so beautiful about this truth is that according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, According to his supreme authority, Jesus died and was raised in order to guarantee perfect eternal life for any and all who would place their trust in him. That 
is how Jesus used his authority to serve, to save us. Hail the king who possesses supreme authority. Hail the king who is sovereign over our salvation. Our response, may we humbly, continually submit ourselves before this kind and gracious king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we thank you. God, because you have done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. God, I pray that we would, in humility, receive what you have to offer us. God, help us to know your kindness. Help us to know your love. Lord, it is who you are. Kindness and love come from your character. So we're thankful for you, God. And may we approach you, may we humble ourselves before you, knowing that you have only the best intentions for us. God, that you intend to eternally bless us and love us. Father, we praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.